0: Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Garner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins.
1: Hello, everybody. It's uh, Trent Thornton again. Basically, if you're hearing this, my only real guess can be that Scott and Michael are completely desperate for content and lacking anything that uh, might someday be mistaken as entertaining or interesting. You're hearing me. They've selected an episode that I uh, put together and you know just recorded. Uh, you know, in the interest of uh, keeping uh, Back to the bins uh, weekly. And so uh, that's pretty much what this is all about. So uh, pretty straightforward, really. And when I think about it, it actually occurs to me now that I've never really given, um, I guess, my origin in terms of comics and how I came to uh, uh, collect comics and all of that. By the way... <laughs> If you hear uh, little you know, pauses and things like that, it's probably me taking a drag off my cigarette here. Yes, I smoke. That's right. Uh, some of you may be thinking that you know, people shouldn't podcast and smoke at the same time, and to that I say, fuck you. Anyway, comic book origin. Really, I think it all, uh, it all really comes back to uh, Superman in uh, most ways. I remember just watching uh, those movies when I was a kid and not really so much being interested in comics, uh, at least not yet, but that was just, I guess, kind of the uh, starting point of it all, the idea of uh, comic book heroes and just, you know, getting that interest started. Comic books were one of those things that, uh, you know, that I don't remember a time when, you know, they weren't around. I remember that there always seemed to be a couple of them just in the house. Parents would buy them for me. Uh, really, I was, even even then, kind of too young to uh, really read them. But I, I was only, what, I want to say, five or six, but I could look at the art and kind of get an idea of, uh, you know what the story was based upon you know the images that i was seeing but you know it would be extremely extremely inaccurate to say that i was a uh, a collector or for that matter like i said even a reader of uh, comic books uh, by any stretch of the imagination it's just it was one like i said they were just something that i would take a look at and i would flip through but not not really care all that much about uh, i remember that uh one of probably my favorite titles at the time was uh, ThunderCats there was a uh, comic book that was based on the uh, the uh, cartoon show and i was a very big fan of the show and so you know any you know if there was a chance to uh, I, again i can't really say read but i guess own or look at ThunderCats comic books then you know i was going to be on board with that and so but i wouldn't say that i really started collecting until i was about I want to say about uh, 10 years old. Uh, Basically, my mom, she took me on a a little visit to a, a friend's house. And you know how it is, like whenever you're a kid, you know, and your parents hang out with other adults, instantly the children kind of get thrown together. And it's like the assumption is, well, you're a child, he's a child... You, surely you're going to be friends uh, but this kid this kid he was he he was cool uh, he was he was very cool like the uh, batman movie the first uh, the first one um uh, directed by uh, tim burton that one had just come out uh, i want to say i don't know maybe 6 months or a year earlier and i was a tremendous fan of that movie i'd never really paid a whole lot of attention to batman up to that point but that movie i i felt it it just it, it captured something and um, you know, I was uh, I was very interested in Batman, but for some reason, the idea of buying Batman comics, for, for some reason, it just did not occur to me. Uh, I, I I could not tell you why. Just it never it never crossed my mind. So, um, but there I was talking to this kid. His name was Jeremy. I was talking to uh, you know Jeremy. Um, you know, and he was he was cool. Um, he was a, a I'm gonna say he was about a year older than I was, and he knew how to draw and all that, and he had all of these comic book posters and action figures and everything. And it just seemed, you know, I walked into a, you know uh, his room and just looked at the looked at the wall, and um, it was just it, it was cool, you know. And here he is, he's telling me about Batman comics and the things that had gone on, uh, you know, up to that point. And some of it had actually been a matter of national news. I mean, when um, readers had voted to kill uh, Jason Todd you know, that, that made headlines, and that was one of those things that I, I remembered hearing about in the news, but it it really hadn't clicked. I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things that you hear about, but you don't really, you're not really aware of it, you don't really understand what had happened, and, you know, especially being, you know, at the time, I was the, I was a consummate uh, Superman guy, so, you know, I didn't really care very much about goings-on with Batman and what might be happening there, you know, who killed whom and for what reason, you know, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't really care, and, and all of that. But, you know, he kind of brought me up to speed a little bit on that. And then from there, uh, started telling me about, you know, this new guy that they were training to be, Robin. You know, Tim Drake. He gave me, you know, kind of Tim's backstory and what all, what you know, had happened. And, you know, and uh, he did all of this. You know, he was just, you know, having uh, just a conversation about it. You know, assuming that I already collected the comics and I knew all about this stuff. And, you know, he wasn't telling me anything that I didn't already know come to find out that all of this was new on me, and so he uh, was actually very encouraging. He said that, you know, look, uh, just, you know, talking to you, I can tell you right now, you would like the comics and where things are going with all of that. So, you know, it's one of those things, I just salted it away, and then later that night my mom and I went to the mall. So, uh, flipping through the uh, spinner rack, and I found um, an issue of uh, Detective Comics. I'll never forget Detective Comics number six seventeen, uh, written by uh, Alan Grant and uh, penciled by uh, Norm Brayfogle. It was basically uh, part one of a uh, storyline that would end with the death of Janet Drake, Tim Drake's mother. They end up getting kidnapped, and you know all of these things happen. And in the meantime, you know, just as all of that stuff is going on batman is running around in, in in gotham city kicking a lot of ass then as now really my expectations for a good batman story they 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 do vary right but um you know really even then it was really as simple i really i honestly want to say that it was as simple as you could have had a batman movie literally two hours of nothing but batman beating the shit out of people and I would have felt like I'd gotten my money's worth. No plot, no characterizations, nothing but just Batman going from place to place to place, kicking the shit out of everybody. You know, I don't know why, but that's always just been something that I've enjoyed seeing. Batman pounding the fuck out of somebody, I don't know why, it just, I think it's cool. And there's a lot of that going on in that in that particular uh, storyline in general. And so, um, anyway, and, I, and if I had to Put a uh, thumbtack in the map and say, you know, that's where it all started. Uh, Detective Comics number 617, that would really be pretty much it for me. You know, after that, uh, things were never really the same. You know, I actually started collecting them and ultimately reading them and, you know, following the titles. I think that's probably pretty good as a uh, as an origin story, as a summary of, you know, where I was coming from, how I got into comics and all of that. You know, pretty straightforward stuff, really. So that, I guess, as Michael Bailey would put it, is my comic book origin. As to uh, today's comics, though, uh, you know, the things that I'm going to be talking about, the first is Amazing Spider-Man number 317. Cover date is July 1989. The title is The Sand and the Fury. The writer is David Michelinie. Artist is Todd McFarlane, which I assume means uh, he did both pencils and inks, and indeed, that's pretty much what the art looks like. It looks like he actually did pencil and ink it himself. The letterer is Rick Parker, Peter's brother, I guess. Colorist is Bob Sharon. Editor is Jim Salicrup, and editor-in-chief is Tom DeFalco. The issue starts off with Peter uh, getting ready to take Aunt May... Uh, Shopping, You know, all the while sweating bullets about Eddie Brock escaping from prison, which is something that happened and I I believe, not the issue before this, but I want to say issue number 315, that's when uh, Eddie escaped from prison. Now, uh, Peter figures he should be okay in all of this because, you know, it's not like Brock knows where he lives. Uh, He doesn't know where to find Peter now that Peter and uh, Mary Jane have moved. And apparently Peter thinks uh, Eddie is too stupid to read a phone book. That ends up being a, a mistake, and assumption on Peter's part because he opens the front door to leave with Aunt May and is greeted by Eddie Brock uh, waiting for him out there on the front porch. Venom's entire shtick is, uh, it all revolves around not hurting innocent people, um, at least not when, not when absolutely necessary. So uh, he doesn't just dive in there and tear Peter limb from limb right there on the spot. Basically, he just makes nice with Aunt May for a little while before uh, he and Peter uh, finally uh, get some alone time. Not that kind of alone time. Eddie tells uh, Peter to meet him somewhere so that they can duke it out in private. Basically, you know, do this without uh, hurting any kind of innocent bystanders or anything like that. Uh, Peter agrees to that, at least in principle, but once he gets away from Brock, immediately puts on his Spider-Man gear and makes a beeline uh, for the Baxter building, hoping to recruit the Fantastic Four to help him with the fight. Uh, Later that afternoon, though, Peter wanders back to Aunt May's house, you know, feeling pretty good about himself, only to find uh, Eddie helping Aunt May do the laundry basically eddie threatens aunt may saying that you know uh, their business is their business it doesn't involve aunt may and it for damn sure it doesn't involve the fantastic four so after a little chat with um with uh, mary jane where peter promises to get some kind of help in his fight against venom spider-man pays a visit to uh, dr charles jefferson spider-man says he needs uh, help with something From there, we immediately jump cut to the next day as as Venom and Spider-Man throw down on the beach. I believe the technical term uh, for this, by the way, would be a complete ass-kicking. Spider-Man, he's no match for Venom. Now, on uh, Dr. Jefferson's advice, Peter eventually reasons that, like any spurned lover turned bitter enemy, uh, the symbiote uh, wants to reconcile. So even though the symbiote has destroyed Peter's car and boiled his bunny rabbit to death, it still wants Peter to be its host. So Peter basically, you know, allows the uh, the uh, symbiote uh, the chance to, uh, you know, reclaim possession. But the uh, process of disconnecting from e- uh, from Eddie and trying to attach itself to Peter is is, is is too much for the symbiote to bear. So uh, the symbiote, Peter, and Eddie are are they're uh, all three knocked out. Peter comes to first and resolves to call the Fantastic Four uh, to handle the cleanup duties. The end. Now. Um, Todd McFarlane is—he's he, one of those guys that everybody has an opinion about, and I can understand that. You know, I, I mean, I've always had an affection for the uh, Nicolini McFarlane run on uh, Amazing Spider-Man because it's—it's it, 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 the old days, you know, back before uh, Todd became such a, a control freak that he had to write, pencil, ink, letter, color, print, and personally deliver all of his comic books to uh, the shops. Uh, he was basically nothing more, really, than a pretty good pencil a pretty good penciler, all right? I'll come right out and say it. I have never, never understood this guy's hype. Uh, I'm not saying he isn't talented, all right? I'm not saying that, you know, Todd McFarlane, you know, he sucks, you know? I'm not saying he's not talented. I'm just saying he's overrated. I mean, you've got guys like George Perez, uh, Neil Adams, John Byrne, and others. And as far as I'm concerned, each of those guys... Uh, earned their reputations Um, nobody nobody gets it done quite like they do you know but McFarlane I mean he's he's good don't get me wrong but I just I never understood how and why he ever came to be regarded as artist par excellence the way that you know those other guys are you know that having been said though I think he did a great job with this issue hell i think he did a great job during his whole run on amazing spider-man in general i think his art i think his art uh looks better whenever he inks it himself yeah you know when other people you know ink his pencils i just i think it loses uh i think it loses a little bit of his stylings now whether or not you think that's a good thing well that's up to you uh there's there's really no accounting for taste um but one thing uh that McFarlane has said in you know various interviews and such, at least that I've seen, is that uh he wanted Peter and Mary Jane to look to look more modern for the time. Uh so you know, basically what this means is he updated their haircuts and their wardrobes and all that other stuff. And uh generally this comic book, this specific issue and the art, it has a pretty eighties feel to it in most places. By the way, that's not a criticism. That's not that's not a bad thing. Um, any comic book looks uh, dated after a while you know it 's just that 's the nature of the beast all i 'm saying is um the uh, is is that McFarlane went into this thing with an with an agenda to uh, modernize uh, the stars of the book and you know in that task, I think he was a success so again, whether or not that 's a good thing comes down to personal preference so um now as to venom um, i 've always preferred McFarlane's version of venom uh his take. Uh, his version of the character is basically uh, just—it's it, really nothing more than just a more massive and powerful version of the black costume uh, Spider-Man, with a scary mouth. You know, no huge tongue, no tongue snot dripping all over the place. Just, just a spooky-looking villain. You know, nothing more, nothing less. I think it works. Uh, now, as far as uh, David Micheline is concerned, um, I, you know, I—I I, got to be—I—I I dig on him too. You know, truth—truth truth is he's no roger stern all right but but then who is micheline you know he does his job in this issue he advances the plot all of the characters feel in character and um you know if the ending of this issue is admittedly kind of abrupt and it is abrupt um it at least makes sense given you know everything that had been established you know now if i've got to complain about this issue it it relates more to i guess the pacing of the last several pages honestly i think the fight uh, between spider-man and uh, venom it just it it went on a little too long you know i realize this is a spider-man comic book drawn by todd mcfarlane at the onset of the early 90s comic book boom but still i think i think we we could have used uh i don't know a little bit more of a of a denouement you know what i mean um, I think Peter coming back to uh, Mary Jane, alive, well, and in one piece—that that w- that, uh, that scene would have been worth a page, you know. And here we don't we don't even get that. I mean, basically Peter leaves uh, Venom uh, just unconscious on the beach. Speaking of Venom, um, I don't really remember what becomes of Venom immediately after this issue. So seeing how and where the uh, Fantastic Four end up uh, incarcerating him—that would have been kind of nice too. As to the uh, the the uh, coloring um, here, it's just it's it's really nothing all that spectacular. Again, it's a Marvel comic book in the late 80s, probably at the height of that uh, of the uh, safe coloring ethos that uh, you know most colorists of the time you know employed and all of that. I mean, I don't remember coloring from this period being all that dynamic, and on that basis, the coloring in this issue. It's really not all that dynamic. So, it's functional. It gets the job done. It's just, it's, it's nothing really worth writing home about. But to be perfectly honest about it, sometimes in life, that's all you can ask for. Now, as to the second issue in this episode, we have Batman Legends of the Dark Knight Madness, a tale of Halloween in Gotham City, inspired by the works of Lewis Carroll and John Tenniel. The cover is a really creepy-looking jack-o'-lantern wearing a top hat with a bat-shaped mouth. As for the credits, writer is Jeff Loeb, art is Tim Sale, letterer is Todd Klein, colorist is Gregory Wright, color separations, uh, android images, and Batman is created by Bob Kane. So uh, The uh, the, uh, story uh, starts off with Babs Gordon sitting on a train writing in her diary. Basically, she's conflicted over what to call Jim Gordon. Uh, She alternates between my dad, Uncle Jim, just Jim, before finally giving up and proceeding to bitch and whine about being allowed to spend an entire day in Gotham freaking City by herself. Jim Gordon waits on the platform to pick her up, reflecting on uh, how crazy it is to raise two kids in Gotham City and wondering just what the fuck he was thinking when Babs finally hops off the train and Gordon suddenly remembers. I'm glad he knows, because I sure as hell don't. Out of nowhere, Batman and the Mad Hatter crash through a skylight and tumbled down onto the top of a passing train. While doing so, Batman's thought captions provide exposition on just what a twisted piece of work Jervis Tetch, a.k.a. the Mad Hatter, really is. Batman and the Mad Hatter take turns kicking the snot out of each other while Jim figures he, being a police officer, probably needs to go home now. Meanwhile, Batman risks his life taking the Hatter down. He and the Hatter eventually uh, fall off of the train and resume their fight inside the Gotham Playing Card Company. Presumably that's because crash landing into a diner full of drunk college kids just wouldn't have the same dramatic heft. From there, the Mad Hatter slashes Batman up with a giant freaking knife and then shoots him in the head with a gun. Batman tumbles off the catwalk and we cut to a scene at the Gordon household where Jim shouts at uh, Barbara to shut baby James up or he'll shut him up himself, while he and Babs argue over how dangerous a place to uh, hang out Gotham City really can be. Honestly, uh, Jim Jim really shouldn't have to convince Babs how dangerous Gotham City can be. I mean, she knows what he does for a living. And, and, you know, I mean, I hope you understand. I'm not saying that, you know, teenagers can't be brats or anything like that, but, you know, because obviously they can. Uh, but you'd think, you know, Babs would have some regard for why, you know, Jim feels the way that he does. Um, After Babs storms off to her room in in a a real huff, uh, Gordon thinks to himself that Batman has it pretty easy and is living a pretty charmed life. Meanwhile, Batman is lying in a pool of his own blood and having delirious uh, recollections of his mother reading him fairy tales the very same night he watched her get shot to death in front of him when he was all of eight years old. Needless to say, Batman comes out of his delirium crying for mommy. Meanwhile, Gordon has discovered that instead of storming off to her room in a huff, Babs is actually a runaway. Gordon tells Barbara, and by that I mean Barbara Gordon, his wife, Gordon tells Barbara about what a screw-up he is for making Babs run away, so Barbara tells him to get off his ass and find her. Because I guess some people need to be told. Um, If you're wondering just how the fuck this guy ever became commissioner of the Gotham City Police Force, you're not alone. Meanwhile... Babs is doing her best to avoid a big bunch of scary guys chasing her around with knives because, you know, this is Gotham City, it ain't safe, and maybe Jim wasn't wrong in keeping her on a short leash. Of all people, though, it's the Mad Hatter that comes to the rescue. He chases off the hooligans with a really freaking huge gun. As all of that is going on, Batman has staggered out into the streets and been found by Leslie Tomlinson. You know, because this story didn't have enough annoying characters in it yet, and she just happened to be driving around, and luckily she found him. Cut back to the Matt Hatter who's having a tea party with Babs who's been all dolled up to look just like Alice. Babs declines his offering of tea so the Hatter, being the well-poised and stable young man that he is, promptly loses his shit over it. As all that is going on, um, Jim Gordon drives around shining a police light around searching for Babs. From there we're treated to a flashback of the aftermath of the Wayne murders and Leslie Tompkins taking care of young Bruce. Cut back to Leslie's, uh, Leslie's clinic in the present day and Leslie's uh, patched Batman up about as well as uh, as well as she can so Batman signals the Batmobile to come uh, to come pick him up and thanks her on his way out meanwhile in what must surely be his first act of genuine police investigation and action in this entire issue Jim Gordon has the Hatter's uh, the Mad Hatter's house uh, surrounded turns out Jim was driving around on Halloween night saw a kid running around in a mask figured this guy must surely know where Babs is and somehow he lucked into finding the Hatter's hideout Batman, having interrogated the same kid, I guess, shows up on the scene and tells Gordon to stay the fuck out while he settles accounts with the Mad Hatter himself. Gordon tells Batman that Babs is in there and to to be careful. Batman punches Gordon in the face and tells him to take better care of his family next time. Either that or Batman silently agrees to Gordon's request and doesn't call him on his Jeff Loeb-induced stupidity. Really, one's about as logical as the other. From there, Batman is faced with a hostage situation as the Hatter has a pocket watch wrapped around Babs's neck and will strangle her if Batman makes so much as one false move. Because it would take about a minute to strangle someone to death and because Batman is standing all of three feet away, he does nothing and simply lets Gordon jump through a window and take the Hatter from behind. Gordon, being the trained professional that he is, of course, manages to fuck all this up, and that somehow allows the Hatter to get away and run up a flight of stairs. The Hatter freaks out of overseeing his own reflection in a mirror, I guess that's the first time something like that's ever happened to him, so Batman comes up from behind and lays him out with one punch. Later, Babs apologizes to Batman for being such an idiot, but Batman leaves before she can finish her thought. Gordon laughs and tells her Batman ignores him all the time, too. Nobody reading this comic can really blame Batman for that at this point. The issue ends with a miraculously healed Bruce Wayne curling up to read Alice in Wonderland as the rain pours down outside. <sighs> Alright. I realize that a fair number of you are probably Jeff Loeb fans, so please understand, I didn't wake up this morning with the intention of pissing in your cornflakes, but I mean, I mean seriously guys, what the fuck? Uh, I didn't like this issue, I, 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 some of you may have guessed that already. Uh, I'm not usually a fan of basically anything Jeff Loeb writes. Um, this comic is actually, this is one reason why. Loeb has this really annoying as piss habit of throwing characterization out the window in order to drive the narrative along. I remember reading this, uh, this comic when I was a kid and kind of digging it, but as, as can happen sometimes, it just it doesn't hold up when you read it again as an adult. You know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but it would be a, a cold day in hell. Okay? Satan would need a parka and a heating pad before Gordon would ever let Batman take on the Hatter all by himself. He'd chase after that train on foot. He'd scramble the SWAT team. He'd commandeer someone's car and follow the train. He'd do something so that he could help Batman take the Hatter down. But that doesn't serve the story that Loeb's telling, so it gets tossed out. That's, guys, that's that's Loeb's move, all right? I don't want to get, uh, look, I, I really don't want to get too far off topic here, but uh, you take the Supergirl from Krypton arc, and this, that, to me, is a prime example of ignoring established characterization, all right? In that story, Jeff Loeb pulls conflict between Superman and Batman out of his ass in writing Batman as being suspicious of Supergirl, for some reason. Yo. The chick flies around the Batcave, she's weakened by kryptonite, she can only speak kryptonese and her ship looks a hell of a lot like Superman's. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and shoots fire out of its fucking eyes, odds are pretty good that she's a kryptonian. But for some reason, Batman was suspicious of her. Guys, Batman is a detective. He follows the evidence wherever it takes him, even if he doesn't like the conclusion. With a metric fuck-ton of evidence like that, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for Batman to be distrustful of Kara, all right? She, she's a fucking Kryptonian, all right, guys? Anyway, that's, that's that stuff. A lot of the drama in this issue, madness, a lot of the drama in this issue comes from Loeb uh, retconning Bruce having positive memories of Martha Wayne reading him Alice in Wonderland on uh, rainy days when he was a kid. Basically, the Hatter pretty much taints that memory, and Batman, Batman isn't cool with that. Well, whatever. I, I, I guess it works, but it's, it's pretty contrived, because Loeb tries, like hell, to convince you that somehow the Mad Hatter gets under Bruce's skin more than the Joker, Two-Face, and the Scarecrow. Now, I'm not saying that you can't justify something like that, but I am saying that you can't justify something like that in a single fucking issue. Okay, cannot be done. You're not going to take a second-tier piece of crap villain like uh, the Mad Hatter and suddenly elevate him to the very top of uh, Batman's rogues gallery um, just in a couple of pages. Okay, not fucking happening. All right. One part though that just really torqued me off is Gordon thinking to himself that Batman has it easy. Guys, Gordon had just seen the Batman crash through a skylight, land on a train. and fight an absolute lunatic. For all Gordon knew, Batman had been hacked to pieces and was lying off in a ditch somewhere. And guys, oddly enough, that's really not too far off from what actually happened. Batman really was out there bleeding to death from his wounds while Gordon screamed at his family and thought Batman was surely living the good life. Look, I'll admit, this story isn't the plot hole with feet that uh, other Jeff Loeb stories like uh, Public Enemies or the Supergirl from Krypton or, you know, stories like that are. But that's, guys, that's, this is just one issue. This is a one-shot, really for no lack of trying, all right? Uh, you know, now, as for as for Tim Sale's art, I, I you know, look, I I dig on Tim Sale, all right? He does a pretty good job here. But, you know, it's, it, it, it's almost like it doesn't matter. You know, when the story is this annoying and incoherent, I almost start taking my hatred out on, on poor Tim Sale, even though he doesn't really deserve it. So all around, this was an absolute monumental piece of crap, waste of my time. I'm sorry I ever read it, but if you're hearing this, it's a, it, I, I can only assume it's because Scott and Michael got extremely desperate for an episode, and this is what you get. For emails this week, uh, we've actually got a couple. A few people actually took the time to write in and let me you know, you know what they're thinking about and what's on their mind and all of that. Just give a little bit of feedback. So first up comes uh, an email from... Michael Bailey. This one says, Hello, Trent. Just wanted to drop you a line and let you know that I got back from my trip to uh, San Francisco. The operation went just fine. And uh, because of that, I'll be changing my name to Michelle in just a few days. Next, uh, Scott Gardner wrote in to say, For the last fucking time, I'm not related to anybody named Guy. Don't make me renew the restraining order. Arthur Ratnick wrote in to say, Tengo el gato los pantalones. Glad to see those Italian lessons are paying off for you, Arthur. And finally, Chiara Knightley wrote in to say, Trent, I just got word back from the doctor. We should both be okay. Turns out I just had a really bad case of chapped lips. Call me tonight. Now I'd just like to take the time to thank everyone for writing in and sharing their thoughts and views on everything. Uh, as i've said before any podcast is only as good as its listeners and you know the feedback that that we all get you know from you you're you're the most important part of this entire process so thank you to everyone who uh wrote in and uh shared their thoughts i encourage the rest of you uh, who are listening to do the same just anytime you feel like it and think that should be pretty much it so thanks
0: Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.